Hey, science nerds. Welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University to try and bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the next generation of science leaders that it's fostering. My name is Jadeep, and I'll be your co-host alongside Daphne. Hello, everyone. Welcome again to MRSA Podcast. So today, we're honored to be joined by Dr. Yingfu Li from the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences. Dr. Li is the Principal Investigator of the Functional Nucleic Acids Research Group at McMaster University, where he focuses on examining nucleic acids outside of their traditional role in genetics. In particular, Dr. Li's group studies single-stranded RNA and DNA as polymers and receptors, which are able to carry out different catalytic and binding functions. Dr. Lee has also been the recipient of the Governor, Governor General of Canada Gold Medal and Doctoral Prize from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada for his doctoral work on the early discovery of DNA molecules with catalytic functions using in vitro selection. So Dr. Lee, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today and thank you for joining us. Oh, it's so great to do this. I really appreciate uh, you guys inviting me for this. Yeah, so today we'll be delving deeper into your research by discussing the background theory of DNA zymes, aptamers, as well as other functional nucleic acids. And we'll also touch on DNA zyme and aptamer-based biosensors for bacterial and viral detection. And lastly, we'll end off um, by discussing the role of undergrads in your lab. But before we get into that, um, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself with respect to your academic journey, um, your research interests, and how you ended up at McMaster? Okay, uh, I'd love to start that way. I always want to tell stories. Uh, so I actually had a story here. Um, so I, I grew up in China. I really want, uh, when I grew up, I want to be a writer. Uh, you know, I, I have, I believe I have creative mind and, uh, you know, that's the thing I always want to pursue. But um, I guess many of you may not know that uh, at the time I was in China, I don't have the freedom to select the subject I want to study. So we have to participate in the national exams and I did well in chemistry. So I ended up with going to chemistry uh, 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 department at uh, Anhui University uh, in China. So then I find the chemistry was quite interesting. And so during the college, uh, I learned English quite well. And I start to re read books like, uh, you know, uh, Hemingway's and uh, all these wonderful uh, uh, books and uh, in literature. But at the same time, also, I really draw into chemistry because particularly organic chemistry, I like it so much. It's, it's, it allows us to create molecules. How wonderful that is. I, I want to grow up uh, like to be a writer. So now I can create uh, characteristic molecules uh, in organic chemistry. So uh, to make the story short, um, so I, I was uh, born, um, you know, many, many years ago. So I, I ended up with uh, getting undergraduate training in China. Then I got a master's degree in China. Then I was not satisfied. I know at the time that China was under the development and the science was not great. So I was motivated to go either uh, US or Europe or Canada to uh, study for my uh, PG degree. Um, uh, it's a long story, uh, but I ended up with uh, going, uh, attending Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, um, uh, British Columbia. I spent five years there. 
And I was introduced to a new topic of uh, RNA world or nucleic acid world by my professor, Dipanka Sen. He dragged me into his lab, literally. Um, and, uh, oh gosh, I really uh, uh, loved uh, getting into the world of nucleic acids. So I did um, my PhD there, uh, studying um, artificial DNA molecules. Um, and I graduated and got a couple of awards uh, definitely just uh, mentioned. And then I went to Yale University, did the postdoctoral research with another great scientist called Ronald Bricker. Uh, together, we made a few DNA enzymes. And by then, I was convinced that, that this synthetic DNA molecules are wonderful. So I decided to return to Canada because I love this country so much. So I decided to return. And uh, luckily, I got a job at a McMaster actually in my first job interview. Uh, so um, I've been here for 20 years. And as you know, I have established a successful lab studying the best properties of um, you know, DNA aptamers, uh, DNA enzymes, and also applied uh, aspects um, of using functional nucleic acids for diagnostics or other applications. So that's my... Uh, I don't know if it's too long, but that's my journey, uh, you know, for the past uh, how many years, 30 plus years. So I've been at MAC for 20, 21 years. Oh, that's great to hear, Dr. Lee. Thank you so much for sharing. We can just tell by the amount of knowledge, we can just tell by the way you're speaking, how much knowledge you've gained over the many years of training that you have. And we look forward to discussing uh, a few points that you actually brought up in your uh, background with respect to functional nucleic acids as well as the synthetic DNA molecules. To, so to begin our discussion on that uh, aspect, uh, Daphne and I have actually seen an emphasis on functional nucleic acids in your research, which we will talk about a bunch of in this podcast with respect to your research work. So for our listeners, to start off, could you define what exactly these functional nucleic acids are? So nucleic acids are typically uh, viewed as a tape. So it codes for information. So the information coded ACGT in DNA passed on to uh, you know, the information RNA then pass on to the, you know, the order of amino acids in protein. So that's how nature using DNA in particular uh, for its uh, coding functions. We though, uh, uh, we and others uh, decided to look at the DNA differently. We want to look at the chemical uh, capability of nucleic acids uh, like DNA or RNA to function as a enzyme. So uh, receptors uh, that interact with other molecules. So what we call the functional nucleic acids are, you know, nucleic acid molecules that can do jobs as enzymes or, you know, interacting with, with other uh, molecules. Well, that's very cool. So since it's really only been over less or, or less than a century since like DNA was discovered and the carrier of genetic material or just sorry, genetic information. When exactly did scientists really discover that we can use nucleic acids outside of um, its base for encoding genetic information? Yeah, so the, the, a lot of great scientists, uh, even in, in early uh, 60s, uh, Francis Crick, and, uh, and other scientists discuss about, um, you know, uh, RNA in particular, uh, beyond their genetic roles in the modern biology. And um, then in um, uh, 1980s, like 80, 81, uh, there are two great scientists uh, made 
groundbreaking discoveries. One is um, Thomas Check at University of Colorado. Um, uh, his lab find uh, RNA-based enzyme that he nicknamed ribozyme, right? Ribo stands for RNA. Uh, it's actually doing the RNA splicing. So a piece of RNA just cut it itself, then join uh, the ends together. So that's called RNA splicing. I'm pretty sure most of the biochemistry students know about that. Another scientist that's actually Canadian called Sidney Altman at Yale University find another uh, RNA uh, molecule called RNA uh, P, the RNA component of RNA protein complex called RNSP is actually doing the catalysis of cutting the premature tRNA into mature tRNA. So these really was grand discovery, uh, groundbreaking discovery at the time. Uh, it was the first time uh, that uh, people show that RNA can be uh, a enzyme. Uh, so they got a little bit of prize. Both of them actually showed a little bit of prize in chemistry in uh, 1989 for these two uh, great uh, discoveries. And then from there, um, uh, another uh, milestone breakthrough uh, was the development of a technique called in vitro selection. Um, basically, it allowed uh, the creation of a huge pool of DNA molecules RNA molecules, then from that pool, we're looking for enzymes, we're looking for aptamers uh, from, uh, for, for doing some very interesting stuff. And uh, that, uh, that was uh, invented, the technique was invented in 1990. And uh, since then, there's just so many labs uh, like mine uh, that use that technique to create uh, aptamers, create uh, ribozymes, create uh, DNA zymes for practical applications. Yeah, so these can go, go back, you know, uh, 50 years, um, you know, when people made the discovery of RNA can do more than just uh, information coding. Thank you again, Dr. Lee, for sharing the history behind the uh, history of, of, you know, uh, nucleic acids outside of their traditional roles in genetics and as bioanalytical tools, because interest is to see the capabilities that they have outside of genetics, right? And you brought up some really interesting points that we hope to cover uh, in this podcast later on, such as uh, the idea of in vitro selection. But before we get into that, I want to ask you a sort of clarification question. So for our listeners who may not have a background in, let's say, cellular biology, could you differentiate between the terms DNA zyme and DNA aptamers, because it might be easy to confuse the two, these two terms. So we were wondering if you could just explain the difference to them for our listeners. Yes, so uh, their bros are DNA. So that's the common thing. So they're made of DNA molecules. When I refer to DNA zyme or DNA enzyme, right? Uh, it refers to a piece of DNA with a sequence uh, they can do chemistry, meaning speed up the chemical reaction enormously. So one reaction we do on a daily basis in our lab is RNA cleavage. So we basically have a piece of DNA grab on uh, to a piece of RNA, then cut it, we call it RNA cleavage. So uh, normally that a chemistry will take a month to complete. Now with the DNA enzyme we created, the reaction can be completed in hours or in minutes or even in seconds. So 
that is a DNA zyme, okay? A DNA optima then is uh, really uh, a word coined uh, early on to describe single-stranded DNA or RNA molecules uh, that it can fold up to create a structure to bind to other molecule of interest. The other molecule could be, you know, a protein or small molecule like ATP. So we basically have uh, the, the DNA optimer create a three-dimensional structure to grab that small molecule and don't let it go. So that is actually optimal. Now you can also marry these two together and you create optimer DNA zyme. We call it aptazyme, aptazyme uh, that the catalysis of the enzyme uh, is dependent on the presence of the binding, the presence of that small molecule in the structure. And so, yeah, there, it could have three terms. So one uh, is a DNA zyme, the other one is a DNA optimer, the other one is aptazyme. Uh, they have linked functions. Okay, that's very cool. And thank you for clarifying that. Um, so I guess another like common thing between DNA zymes and DNA aptimers is the fact that they're both um, single-stranded molecules. So, um, and we know um, DNA exists in a double-stranded form, and but RNA is single-stranded naturally. So, in the lab, how um, do you are you able to stabilize these single-stranded DNA molecules in order to use them as aptimers or DNA zymes? And uh, that's a very interesting question. So, first, we can generate single-strand DNA molecules, but simply by taking away the complementary strands. So, in cells, we have two complementary strands, so they pair to form duplex structure, right? So when you take one strand away, then you're generating single strand DNA with all these wonderful bases, they were going to interact. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we are not smart enough to design these sequences. But, you know, in the library that we create, we believe like the library is huge. Um, so it, like, ten, it has 10 to the power of 15 different molecules we typically use. You could imagine there was a guy uh, like uh, Stephen Curry and could shoot the three points from <laughs> all over the uh, you know court, and so we're looking for like a you know that type of a talent. They can you know create a structure, then doing a catalysis. Now, in terms of how you stabilize uh, a nucleic acid sequence to create a structure, although we cannot design it. But we know based on the property of a single-stranded DNA or RNA sequence, which is negatively charged in the molecule, we need to have positively charged metal ions in solution. So basically you neutralize that charge because you know, if a molecule like a DNA has so many negative charges, they don't want to fool together, right? Because the uh, you know, uh, electrostatic uh, uh, interaction. So then you put cation, it will neutralize this uh, positive and negative charge of the backbone to allow DNA uh, to be dominated by an interaction uh, between bases. And so that will allow the DNA to, uh, to create uh, structures. And some of these um, sequences with the matching structure programmed can um, be an optimer or can be a, a, a DNA zyme. So our job is really trying to fish these guys out from that pool and so that we have uh, uh, a, a new DNA sequence 
for uh, interesting function. Yeah, that's really great. And that's a really intuitive way of thinking about how you can, you know, stabilize single-stranded DNA. If it's, neg if it's negatively charged, you just bring in positively charged cations to uh, maximize the electrostatic attraction between them in order to stabilize them. And also an NBA reference in a, in a you know, in a cell, bio cell biology context, who would have thought? That's kind of cool to think about. So to carry on with the discussion, you mentioned about, you know, how you go about in the lab isolating these DNA optimers, right? So that's my next question. How do researchers like yourself generate and identify these DNA optimers or DNA enzymes in the lab? And for our listeners, as a sort of follow-up to this question, could you give a brief overview of the, the SELEX technique by first defining what this acronym stands for and how it is used to discover DNA enzymes or aptamers which are not naturally occurring because these are synthetic DNA molecules at the end of the day? Yeah. Um, so maybe we'll start with the SELEX. SELEX is, uh, you know, is an acronym for uh, a systematic evolution of ligands by exponential enrichment, okay? So what it actually does is that I already said, if I give you a pool of 15, um, 10 to the power of 15 different DNA molecules, they got to have some magic molecules there. Now, how I can find them? If you go to, you know, um, let's say El Canada, I don't know, now called Scotia Arena, you know, to uh, find your friend there, I think without any kind of phone or anything, it will be a enormous trouble for you to find that out, right? But if you know your friend is actually a beer drinker, so you probably go to the, you know, the, 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 the place that you can buy beer and wait there, right? So we basically doing similar kind of a trick. Um, so for example, okay, so if I want to select an optimer that bind to DNA polymerase, Okay, so what I will do then, get the DNA polymerase, put on, uh, you know, a column, like affinity column, like uh, some sort of like beads, so that it could immobilize DNA polymerase onto the beads. So now, uh, uh, the, if I make that, uh, the beads magnetic, so I can actually drag the beads out of the solution, move the superlatent away. Now, the superlatent will contain my library. And uh, so I put the library in the superlatent mixed with the beads that contain the DNA polymerase. The one that actually bind to the DNA polymerase, okay? And it will stay with the magnetic bead. I simply need to apply magnet, then suck away the superlatent. Now the molecule that actually bind to the DNA polymerase uh, is on the beads. So what I need to do then is to heat it up to uh, disrupt the interactions between the DNA polymerase on the beads and also the long coolantly bound uh, aptamer. Now, because of the DNA, right? So I can amplify it using polymerase and uh, so generate the, you reach the pool. So at the beginning, I might have one molecule, but I can do polymerase chain reaction and PCR. I can amplify it by thousands of times, right? So through one cycle, I generate uh, enriched pool, like each of the sequence that I'm interested is, uh, is amplified by, let's say, a thousand times. So then I have pool number two, I repeat this process again. So at the end of the round two, I amplify 10 to the six times, right? You could do the math. 
And uh, so, you know, a few rounds and you'll get the magic amount that you are looking for. That's how we typically uh, doing this. Now, the DNA enzyme is, is isolated similarly. So we, let's say well, I'm looking for a DNA enzyme that cleave RNA. So what do we actually do is that we join the RNA molecule onto the DNA library. We want, uh, you know, the DNA enzyme that have the RNA attached to it to do the special chemistry. That is cut the RNA uh, on, uh, on, on uh, tagged RNA. Now the RNA and DNA construct gets big to begin with, right? So if you cut the RNA off, the DNA become much shorter. And uh, we could be using things like, you probably run the gel like SDS page, which is separate nucleic acid by size. And then we do a uh, polyacrylamide gel under generation condition, we separate single-stranded DNA molecules by size. And after the cutting, the DNA enzyme, uh, the molecule with a catalytic function for RNA cleavage will become shorter. So we simply needed to, you know, isolate um, the shorter DNA molecule for PCR and repeat that cycle many, many times. So uh, it's almost like guaranteed uh, at the end that we get the DNA enzyme we're looking for. That's very cool. Thank you for that in-depth description of the whole process. So now that we've got like a really good foundational understanding of or the theoretical theoretical component of your lab's work, um, we can discuss some of the applied research that you've or the applied research projects that you've been focusing on. So we've heard a lot about the handheld device that's used for detecting bacterial infections, more specifically um, E. coli for urinary tract infections. Um, could you give our listeners a little bit of a brief overview of that work? Yeah, uh, love to. And so we recently published a big paper in Nature Chemistry. Uh, so I've been working on uh, DNA zone that are activated by E. coli for a long time. Uh, so our lab is the first lab in the world to show that you can take a bacterial cell, then engineering a DNA enzyme uh, for that bacterial cell. We're not actually bind to the bacterial cell, but interact with a protein that come out of the bacteria. And uh, you know, upon binding, uh, these are, we're engineering aptamazines, right? Upon binding of the protein target, the DNA enzyme cut it itself to get rid of the RNA. Okay, so we isolated that molecule uh, uh, more than 10 years ago. And uh, so then we start playing around with it. And uh, we have published, I don't know how many papers, more than 10 for sure, uh, showing how useful uh, E. coli detecting DNA enzyme can be for, um, you know, uh, biosensing or, uh, you know, diagnostic applications. And uh, so then I, uh, I got to know uh, uh, Professor Leila Soleimani in engineering physics or School of Biomedical Engineering. Uh, we saw she had this kind of uh, tool. Uh, she has the ability to engineer devices like the glucose monitor. You know, a lot of uh, diabetic people use to measure the glucose in the blood. So she's capable of doing all these kind of uh, engineering work. Now we have a DNA enzyme that can detect E. coli. So we thought we might want to engineer, uh, uh, you know, that kind of device that can detect E. coli you, uh, urine sample. 
you know, actually the, the UTI is a, a serious disease and that mostly caused by E. coli. And uh, so then we work with, uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, a clinical lab at McMaster. We applied and her lab designed the device and using our DNA sign and work with the clinician to test whether, you know, that little device can actually identify E. coli straight up in uh, urine. And um, magically it can. Um, and we tested, I don't know how many uh, clinical samples, uh, probably like 30, 40. And we show that uh, that device uh, is very, very uh, uh, accurate. And more importantly, that you don't need to do bacterial culturing anymore. So you can get a result relatively quickly. Maybe, you know, uh, depends on the um, bacterial concentration. You can get a readout in 10 minutes or the longest, probably like an hour. And you will be able to uh, tell the patient whether, you know, uh, they have the UTI. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dr. Lee. And we can just tell by the explanation that you gave that this is a very passionate project that you've uh, taken on. And just goes to show how, how you know, uh, interdisciplinary collaboration between uh, fields such as engineering and cell biology can intertwine to create these great breakthrough innovations such as this device that you've generated. On the topic of that, I was curious to know what makes aptamers or DNA zymes or nucleic acids in general, attractive tools in bioanalytical bio applications, such as in this uh, handheld device that you're developing. What's the benefit of using nucleic acids for these diagnostic tests? Uh, there are quite a many. One, all these molecules are made synthetically. Um, so we can engineer any kind of a receptor or DNA zyme for any molecule of interest in theory. Right, because we can do. Nature provide us with many good molecules uh, to begin with, but uh, we now have the ability to engineer uh, DNA zymes, aptamers, uh, targeting any molecule of interest. So that's one advantage uh, that nature or protein uh, may not be able to deliver. The second thing is that the chemistry is so optimized. So to make a DNA molecule is a piece of cake. In fact, you think about the diagnostic test, right? You know the cost of the DNA on that chip? Can you, can you guess it? I would say it's not that expensive, maybe $10, $15? Something like that? Not even close, right? <laughs> so like in a few cents. Uh, oh. So because we're using a tiny amount of the DNA on mm. the chip. Right, sounds like DNA is, is expensive, right? But yeah. in fact, it's not. And uh, so you can uh, buy a piece of DNA, like a DNA zyme, uh, it costs about $10. And so that $10 can made it into like 10,000 chips. <laughs> and uh, so this is why the material cost is like a minimum. Uh, and so because of the chemistry is so great, and so you can synthesize this easily. The other thing is that because you do chemical synthesis, and it was a small, relatively small molecule like a DNA, the batch to batch variation uh, is small compared to you. I mean, I don't know you guys have made E. coli express proteins uh, in the lab. And, you know, if you have done that, you know how challenging that is to purify proteins. Mm -hmm. And DNA, you don't have to deal with, uh, deal with that. The other thing is that the, the chemical stability. Now, the reason DNA has been picked as a genetic material. Uh, uh, by nature is because of the extremely high stability of the DNA. 
uh, people talk about the clone. If you know the Jurassic Park, right? So it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a scientific fiction that actually have foundation because the DNA molecules is so stable under dry condition it can last forever. You know, under the um, solution conditions, the DNA half half life can be ten thousand years. And compared with protein, you know, there's only, uh, you know, a, a few days and then protein um, is degraded. So that's a huge, huge advantage. The other thing is DNA, you can heat it up. Like we do, we cook, cook DNA, like we cook it. We boil the DNA like for 30 minutes. DNA, I'm pretty sure uh, if I'm DNA molecule, I will not be happy. But <laughs> when you cool it down, it actually renatures. And uh, that's what actually we do in the lab, like, you know, renaturing or doing this uh, Western blot, often use harsh conditions to treat the DNA. If you treat that, treat RNA or treat protein, it is dead. If you work in the research lab, your professor will tell you, okay, that enzyme is so expensive. Make sure you put it back in the freezer after you actually use it. If you didn't put it back and it went bad, and your professor probably will be pretty mad with you. And so, oh, that tube just cost me $500. Uh, so it, it is, uh, you know, there, I can tell you there are so many uh, advantages. Uh, I don't want to beat on proteins, but, you know, uh, nucleic acids and DNA in particular uh, really offer a lot of, um, you know, uh, traits that, um, you know, protein RNA just cannot match. Yeah. So seeing how amazing um, DNA zymes and also other nucleic acids are um, for their biosensor uses. Um, and um, so since this paper has come out um, um, mid last year in June, um, what stage of development is the device in currently? And when can we expect to see this as a typical treatment for UTIs? Actually, uh, we got delayed by COVID. So I want to tell you another story that we actually, I, I told uh, Jadeep's uh, class last year, actually they, I, from time to time, I said, we're gonna develop a COVID test. And uh, we actually made Aptimer for spike proteins and we got funding from the Canadian Institute of Health Research twice. And uh, we, I don't know whether Jadeep know that we actually succeeded in getting the diagnostic test that can pick up uh, spike protein uh, from the real virus in saliva in 10 minutes. This is also a big collaboration that involved uh, Leila Solomani's lab and also Dr. Professor John Brennan uh, in chemistry and a whole bunch of other uh, profs, uh, you know, actually 10 profs that are involved in uh, this project, including our vice president of research and Karen Mossman, and also uh, uh, um, my colleague, uh, Matthew Miller, uh, who is a virologist, and also a couple of uh, uh, clinicians on the project. And uh, so that project now is being commercialized by a company called Zentag. They used to call Zen Graphene Solutions. Uh, they have changed the name now called the Zentag. Uh, uh, it's a TX, TSX listed company who are very much interested in uh, diagnostic platform. So they licensed um, our technology and they are working as fast as they can to put that onto the market. Although um, the research is done in the laboratory, the results, uh, everything is very convincing, but they still need to do validation. 
and to follow the guidelines by in, in Canada is Health Canada, but in US, uh, you know, uh, the FDA. So you have to go through all these steps to do the uh, validation of the product because we typically generate in the lab is a prototype. Now they work with a whole bunch of uh, 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 supplies to manufacture the device. Um, I was hoping they could actually uh, make it a quick, move it faster so that uh, now is really is a great market for COVID tests, right? Uh, but I know they're, they're trying very hard. And also I think, you know, it's uh, just a small Canadian company and we are trying to do a lot of things in Canada. So I'm very proud of them. And I hope, uh, you know, in the next few months, they will have the real product onto the market. So for the uh, UTI test, uh, it's probably still take some time, but uh, because the COVID test is so important, uh, so we have the, you know, industrial partners who are willing to invest uh, in the technology and try to put onto the market. Of course, for them it's making money, but I see it more of really helping Canadians to get over this pandemic. That's great to hear, Dr. Lee. And it's kind of like a good problem you have, right? We have two great uh, tests that you've developed, but it makes sense that you have prioritized the COVID test because uh, you know it's of uh, use at the moment because of the pandemic that's going on. So we really hope that you do you do let us know of any updates that happen with the with the bacterial detection test because we're looking forward to hearing about it and it's actually great that you talked about the COVID test because that was actually our next point of discussion in which you've already given a great amount of detail so just to summarize you made this COVID test it's a rapid antigen test that you can do at home that detects the spike protein and uh, it can also have heard also detect a different uh, it can detect the mutation of the spike protein so you can tell if you have the alpha or maybe even the delta variant right so what inspired this work in COVID-19 was there a knowledge gap or was there just a need for better at-home testing in the market well we just want we just want uh, to do something and uh, so the lab was shut down uh, in uh, uh, 2019 Mm -hmm. And so now we're in 2022, uh, right? So uh, I guess the lab is shut down at the beginning of 2020. And um, we're working in a diagnostic area. I just feel at the beginning, I, I know that, you know, in Canada, we don't manufacture stuff. So we'll, we'll be in big trouble. And so a bunch, a group of us just decided, okay, let's do something. And uh, so we, uh, from March and April and May, we're chasing money. So uh, normally, uh, you know, we're doing okay. There are funding agencies will apply to it, but then, you know, we need to put together uh, a team pretty quick. So we approached a university, like even the Dean of Science actually uh, contributed money to let us to get this project study uh, started. And then we also contact, uh, uh, you know, whole bunch of companies uh, then try to get money from them as well. Then we also apply to, um, you know, the federal funding agencies. We even talk to the uh, provincial leaders and try to get the money. But to make the story short, uh, we end up with getting a few grants to work on this because we really feel that at the time that, you know, uh, the nasal test is not the ideal solution. We would like to do it with saliva. So saliva is easy to get. 
And everybody can have, there's uh, no trouble getting the saliva, right? So we spit in from time to time. So it's it's so easy, but stick a thing, uh, you know, into your nose. I don't know whether you guys have done that COVID test. Is is not, uh, I haven't done it, but my wife has 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 done it. I have seen the thing stick in the, in the <laughs> nose. And uh, so, uh, so at a get-go, we saw it as uh, a need for us. And as also, we feel that this is a good testing ground for us to push the technology further. Uh, so that's also the motivation uh, behind us. Um, so still right now, there is no saliva-based test. And so we're very proud of uh, picking up the hard challenge. And then the, for the last um, you know, 20 months, there are so many uh, researchers within McMaster, within our team, uh, work together and get this done. So it's amazing. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here, I, I'm actually, I never did all the experiments. So I'm just basically <laughs> give, uh, give uh, suggestions or instructions to the researchers. And I really appreciate how hard for them to go into the lab, um, you know, Almost all my researchers has never stopped during COVID uh, nineteen. They work in the lab. You know they have to go through all these hassle to check in. You know physical distance, put gloves, uh, put masks on. Imagine you do it. You know eight or nine hours a day. Uh, you know every day. Um, it is. You know uh, I, I really, I really very proud of uh, them. Yeah, it's great to see uh, the appreciation of, um, of, of, your, of the work that your researchers have done and how much progress we've made towards commercializing a test that's so great and would be able to help us greatly. And so with the evolving situation of the pandemic and seeing that Omicron, the new variants are popping up, um, are these optimers um, or are these optimers based tests, are, are they able to detect um, constantly modified variants or um, do you need to produce new tests for these new situations? Yeah, you guys, uh, you guys, uh, are pretty good researchers, are pretty smart, and you you were thinking the same uh, questions uh, I was thinking. Yes, uh, you know, to make the story short, that we have developed a universal optimer that recognizes uh, all the variants. Uh, so we also did it, uh, you know, JD, uh using select to solve the solution. So, uh, so how we did is we create an optimal pool. It's not just one optimum. We create we create hundreds or, or thousands of optimers that in the final can reach the pool. We, we now call the G13 pool. Okay, then uh, all these variants keep on coming up, right? So we decided to uh, within that pool we do called a parallel selection, and we only did one round for like a Wuhan uh, variant. Then the uh, we don't have an Indian variant at the time, but we have a uh, UK, we have South Africa, we have uh, Brazil, we also have California. So we have five versions. We decided to apply that pool to five different um, uh, different uh, uh, variants. Then after the selection, we uh, did the sequencing. We look at what is common in this five selections. What's the common in terms of the sequences, optimal sequences? And we'll find a one magic molecule related uh, universal optimer. And that optimer recognized everything. I was kind of worried whether they would recognize uh, the Omicron. 
right? Because everybody talking about Omicron, the vaccine <laughs> is no longer working, and there's so much mutation. We are uh, looking for optimists that bind to the spike protein. And to our great uh, surprise, also uh, uh, pleasure, that our optimal recognized the Omicron spike uh, protein. So yes, and we we have the best aptamer in the world. The other uh, people in other countries also did aptamers. We also compared their aptamers to us. We our uni us universal aptamer is the only aptamer that recognized all variants of concerns that we tested, and uh, particularly this Omicron uh, 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 variant. And we already have aptamer that it can deal with uh, deal with the Omicron. We we did a we did a uh, Soros study, we have a manuscript that's submitted for publication. We have patent that are going to be filed uh, tomorrow. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing that, Doctor. You can just you can just tell by the amount of explanation that you give that you're really passionate about this, right? And we're so excited because with this universal aptamer that you've developed, it has the potential to detect all sorts of variants of concern. I can make testing really easy and accessible for all, and hopefully help us to gain some control in this pandemic. So thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, as we near the end of this podcast, Dr. Lee, we want to also touch base with you after discussing the background lab theory and also the practical application of your research. We want to touch base with you on the role of undergraduate students in your research lab and how they have been involved in progressing your research forward. So my question to you is, can you describe the typical role of an undergraduate student in your research lab? For example, can they volunteer? Can they take part in co-op placements or complete research projects like a thesis? I think, you, uh, you know, for us to involve undergraduate students, you know, research is important. Mm -hmm. We all came from there. So my, uh, uh, the real interest in research uh, was, uh, came when I studied in China for two professors who put me uh, into their lab and doing uh, research work. And uh, so I, I, I know how important that is. In fact, each year I have uh, five or six uh, students in my lab participating in real research. Yes, I'm, I'm very big on that. Unfortunately, like uh, my lab can only take that many. And, uh, you know, Jadeep, uh, that uh, there, we have so many students even in our class. And, Many people write to me and say, okay, Dr. Ni, can I uh, volunteer working in your lab? Mm -hmm. I typically don't take a volunteer in my lab. Uh, I typically pay them um, because I, I have a lot of money. So I have no problem in, <laughs> in paying them. Uh, the often is the space, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, is I want to identify students who are really interested in research. And I want to give these students the opportunity uh, the most because that's how I came uh, to this point, that is, I was interested, or I was showing by my professor how great the research can be, and so I want to provide that kind of uh, opportunity for, for students. Now, with that being said, it's very hard to, uh, to identify students. Uh, so how do I know that, Jadeep, you're interested, or uh, definitely you're interested? Um, so we're also very busy, and so I think for students who are really, really interested in research, they should uh, keep on asking professors. So somebody, for example, is very much interested in the DNA enzymes. Uh, they should probably contact me a few times, uh, given how busy I am. And there's also not like just say, okay, Doc Nee, uh, you know, do you have a position in your lab? Uh, I would rather 
uh, you know, suggest the students really do some research as you guys did about our research work, read some of the papers. Maybe, you know, they don't want to get involved in two things. But uh, if after they have done some research, they got excited, they feel that this is, you know, a field that they want to jump in, feel free to contact me. I usually don't, uh, you know, I don't want to see this, then I will receive all the, you know, bombarding emails from uh, your audience there. But <laughs> it is certainly true that, you know, if you really have the interest, you should keep on, you know, asking the professor for the opportunity. Uh, in the end, we want to give you the opportunity. Now, after you get the opportunity, really take it as, uh, uh, you know, seriously. And uh, so I have, I have, uh, I have uh, students. I, uh, after students got in my lab, I give them the opportunity. I love most of them. And uh, including like the COVID test, then I involved uh, a student uh, who, uh, Ryan, who is actually going to graduate this year in fourth year. But he has been working in my lab since year two and uh, year three. And last, uh, uh, in the summer, uh, in the past summer, he is working on characterizing the binding of spike uh, protein binding DNA aptamers. And, um, you know, his name is already on one paper. I think by the time he graduated, he will have his name on three papers. Uh, so uh, I'm kind of looking for motivated students uh, who wants to work on functional nucleic acids, you know, um, uh, take it as a real opportunity, like a real research opportunity. Uh, I, I, you know, there's no difference uh, uh, between undergraduate students or graduate students or a postdoc fellow. Yes, they come with a different experience, a different background, but the projects can be designed or the, the you know, uh, a student can play a role in a team setting and to do a very important piece of work that um, is uh, an integral part of a large project like the COVID-19 uh, 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 project, right? So, but I think, you know, what's important for the students is to really uh, demonstrate or have that real interest to join a lab. If that's the case, I think McMaster is a great place and a lot of labs like me, uh, I, I have a lot of money. And uh, so <laughs> it's, uh, you know, the space can be a problem, but you know, if I really find some students who are really interested in our work and I would give them the opportunity, uh, even if the lab is crowded. I know the physical distancing, we have to consider it, but there are different ways, right? So we, uh, people, uh, undergraduate students uh, typically like to work maybe evening time, so and even at night, uh, because they have the, 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 the coursework during the day. And so we can always make things to work. And so there would have been any, any uh, problem there. Yeah, uh, I think undergraduate students play a big role in my research program. Yeah, so there, there are opportunities. Sorry, sorry about that. But I just wanted to say, like, taking away everything from what, everything you've said, you want students that are motivated and are interested in your work and will work hard, essentially. Um, so I think that really brings us to the end of the podcast today. So thank you so much for being here with us today. And we really enjoyed our discussion of your work on functional nucleic acids. And we learned a lot. And I hope our researchers can take away that um, nucleic acids have a function outside of their role in genetics and also take away the important um, knowledge you bestilled upon us about the role of undergrads in your lab. So it was a pleasure to have you on. And again, thank you for joining us.